let's see what we got here. Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since 1996. You can read all of my written work at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to click the link that exists there to my other podcast that I do, very similar to this one, except it covers films of the 1990s as well as movies that are newer than the 90s that are influenced by the 80s and 90s. So a companion podcast to this, it's called To the 90s and Beyond, and you can find the link to that podcast at quipster.net. Today, I'm going to be getting into the second part of this. Well, it was originally going to be a three-part series, but it might actually be more of a six- or seven-part series because the third movie I was going to do in this series has a special edition Blu-ray that's coming out within a couple of months of this. So I'm going to postpone that one and then push the three-part series I was going to do after this one forward. But regardless, it still falls under the original umbrella of films of the 1980s, horror films specifically, where the evil takes place at a hotel or motel. Obviously, last week we looked at The Shining. This week we're going to a much smaller place than The Overlook. Very small. It's a motel this time. Motel Hell, which came out the same year as The Shining in 1980. Motel Hell is an R-rated film. It has disturbing, violent content, nudity, sexuality, and language. The runtime is an hour and 41 minutes. The main stars are Rory Calhoun, Paul Link, Nina Axelrod, Nancy Parsons, and Wolfman Jack. The director is Kevin Connor, and the screenplay credited to Robert Jaffe and Stephen Charles Jaffe. Now, Motel Hell, if you've seen the film, it's a dark comedy. It does border, oftentimes, on spoofing the horror genre that it's playing within. It has a style that some might lovingly compare to all of those great EC comics that came out of the time. Very eerie, but very uncanny and, and kind of funny in many respects. Now, Stephen Charles Jaffe, Robert Jaffe, they are brothers. Brothers who were trying to break into screenwriting. They also became a producing team as well. And they collaborated on the script to Motel Hell on spec. They weren't getting paid for this. Nobody told them to make it. They wanted to do this because they were struggling to find an open door to Hollywood. They wanted to start their careers. And after several of their individual ideas, they worked separately for the most part, for screenplays, novel ideas, nothing seemed to really gain any traction. They determined that they were going to do something currently that was in studio demand that wasn't going to cost a lot of money that would get the interest of somebody who was looking to make movies. And that meant doing kind of an exploitation flick, which was very popular in the late 1970s. Something that was very attention-grabbing, maybe make a cult movie of their own that they could have a lot of fun writing together, if nothing else. So the Jaffe brothers, they looked to what was out kind of at the time, things they enjoyed. They looked to horror movies specifically because they found them quite terrifying, yet very arresting. 
A movie that they enjoyed was the 1973 Italian chiller called Torso, as well as in 1974, Toby Hooper's film, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. They really liked those, even though they found them disturbing, because those films tempered their repulsive subject matter with a kind of gallows humor that allowed audiences to cope with what they might never stomach from a straight-up gore fest. So the Jaffees wanted their horror script to be just as funny as it was disturbing. They wanted to inject a lot of humor to try to counterbalance the sadistic acts that were going to be on display. So as they began brainstorming ideas, they they tapped into their own phobias. They tried to imagine what's the most disturbing thing that they could think of that really hadn't been done before on film. And they came up with the notion that it might be actually pretty creepy, freaky, to see people buried up to their necks in the ground, unable to move and be at the whim of whatever sadistic madman had put them there. So the ideas for how and why those people got there sprung from that idea. The Jaffees took turns making suggestions. One brother would come up with his own character and motivation concepts, and when he was done, he would hand it over to the other sibling that sibling would take over and they would springboard off of each other, each taking command while the other brother took notes until they had a finished story idea. After four weeks of back and forth, they compiled all of this into a draft script. Now, the finished film, kind of a, a Sweeney Todd-esque script, it follows the exploits of Farmer Vincent Smith. Farmer Vincent has three basic jobs. He's, of course, a farmer, but he's also a motel owner, and he's a purveyor of the best straight-from-the-farm smoked meat products sold in the county. Vincent and his sister Ida, they set up road accidents to abduct injured passersby along this two-lane highway near their motel. By the way, their motel is called Motel Hello, but the last O in their neon sign is on the blink, so it often reads as Motel Hell. Vincent and Ida, they chloroform their victims to knock them out, and then they plant their bodies into the ground, up to their neck, in their walled-off so-called secret garden. They sever their vocal cords to keep them from making any kind of noise that would lead people to look in that walled-off garden. Now, these victims are kept fed until it's time to process them, for their super-secret blend of pork and human flesh meat products, the Koi slogan for Farmer Vincent's meat products is, it takes all kinds of critters to make Farmer Vincent's fitters. And hanging around, but completely oblivious, is Vincent's daft younger brother named Bruce, who happens to be a county deputy sheriff based in the nearby town of Grainville. That's the basic setup for Motel Hell. Now, once they completed their script, no studio, as you can imagine, wanted to touch this. They either hated this concept or really they didn't understand it. So the doors of opportunities remained closed for the Jaffees, but eventually things did change. They got some traction because of the breakthrough success of John Carpenter's Halloween in 1978. Studios began seeking other low-budget horror features to try to make. Universal Pictures took the lead. They brought back the Jaffees, who had pitched them on it, but they were dismissed. But they brought them back for a second look at Motel Hell. And they decided to take it on, packaging it as the next vehicle for Texas Chainsaw Massacre director Toby Hooper, one of the main influences for the film. Unfortunately, 
As they started to develop it, Universal grew increasingly nervous about the gruesomeness in the script. Eventually, that nervousness led them to drop the film altogether, and they put Toby Hooper on The Fun House instead. However, all was not lost for the Jaffees, because to the rescue came their father, Herb Jaffe. Herb Jaffe, he was the former head of worldwide distribution for United Artists for 10 years. He eventually became an independent producer. And Herb stepped in. He convinced United Artists to greenlight the Motel Hell project by giving them the clout, his own clout, accepting the role of the executive producer under his company, Camp Hill Productions. He promised to fund the film as needed if there were any issues. And United Artists decided they were going to put up $3.2 million if the Jaffees could get the film into theaters by Halloween. Although $3.2 million is kind of a low-budget effort, the average film cost about $8 million at the time. This was a very substantial cost for a B-movie exploitation flick. This was more than a lot of those, which were usually of just a few hundred thousand dollars. But it had to cost that much because the studio funding, by having United Artists take over, incurred substantial union fees and costs. Now, for the director, United Artists' first choice was Joe Dante. Joe Dante, he exhibited the ability to blend horror and comedy, especially when you look at his 1978 film Piranha. But Dante had already committed to making The Howling, so he was not available. Curtis Harrington was also sought, but he turned it down. He thought that the idea was just too distasteful. Eventually, they did stumble upon a director they weren't looking for, a British director with no prior Hollywood experience named Kevin Connor. Connor found himself kind of the unlikely choice to take on Motel Hell because he happened to be in the right place at the right time. Connor was somebody who had been pigeonholed in Great Britain into doing these Edgar Rice Burroughs story adaptations as family entertainment for Amicus Productions. After Amicus went out of business and then the bottom seemed to drop out of the British film industry, Connor decided to go to the United States, try his hand at making American films in 1980. After four months of trying and nothing going his way, Connor did visit the office of the only person he really happened to be friends with in Hollywood, this agent named Bobby Littman, who had his sample reel videotape in his office. So Connor decided to visit and grab that tape to try to shop it around somewhere. But when Connor did visit Littman, Littman felt bad for his friend who was struggling so hard. So even though he didn't represent him, Littman told him, hey, I'm going to get you a gig Littman called another agent that he knew in Hollywood who mentioned that United Artists happened to be looking at that time for an experienced horror film director. Littman absolutely promised Connor had the experience. Connor happened to have directed one of his films. One of his early films was this horror anthology from 1974 called From Beyond the Grave. They weren't necessarily familiar with that film, so Connor brought several giant canisters of his 35mm print of From Beyond the Grave for the Jaffe brothers to screen on their own. After they watched it, they loved it. In fact, they thought Connor was better than a lot of the other directors that they had been thinking of because he was also an experienced editor. He had that editor's eye. And they also felt that being from the British film industry gave him a, a much different flavor, a kind of British sensibility that could really boost the humor value. They offered Connor the script to look at. Now, Connor opening to the first page, he was immediately apprehensive about taking this on because the first shot of the film, the first page, involved the obese sister, Ida, in a motel room bed with a dildo cuddling a pig. 
Connor was not a fan of very graphic movies. He preferred much more subtle approaches, such as those taken by Alfred Hitchcock or, or Claude Chabrol, in emphasizing suspense and humor over crude sexuality and gory violence. But he did need the break in Hollywood, and he also liked the money that they were offering. Plus, this was going to break the typecasting that was caused by his run of family films and show everybody that he could handle much more mature projects. He didn't want to get stuck doing family films the rest of his life. Connor took the directorial chair, and he made suggestions to try to get the film to conform to what he had in mind. He conceived the story in 10-minute reels. Each segment, each 10-minute segment would build up to something, and at the end of it, something shocking would occur. So you would get that periodically throughout the film. The Jaffees agreed to rework the script, but they remained on the set to make sure that their vision did not derail. Now, to avoid the misogynistic formula trappings of the slasher movie cycle that was going on, in the United States at the time, where female teens were being mercilessly slaughtered, Connor and Jaffe decided they were going to spread the ages of the characters, the victims, the genders, the backgrounds. Included among the victims were not teenagers. They were a USDA inspector. There were a group of punk rockers. There were a couple of prostitutes, some kinky swingers who've come for an orgy, mostly adults, people that maybe were not going to be missed if they went missing. Connor's top choice to play Farmer Vincent when he went to casting was Harry Dean Stanton. Connor visited Stanton's home several times to try to discuss script and character ideas. Stanton was interested, but after serious consideration, he eventually passed because his career happened to be taking off after Alien. He started getting better offers, so he decided to take those instead. So Connor then started working with this folksy B-movie Western genre regular called Rory Calhoun. Calhoun happened to exude a lot of the same qualities of Harry Dean Stanton. And Calhoun, needing the work as well, decided to take it on. This was a rare film where Calhoun takes a starring role, and it also happened to represent his first horror movie. Nancy Parsons, who to many aficionados of the 1980s, you would know her eventually for playing Beulah Ballbricker in the Porky's movies. Well, she auditioned for Ida. She was very excited to get the part because not only was it pretty much a starring role, but she also wanted to work with Rory Calhoun. The character of Ida was based on this babysitter that the Jaffe brothers had growing up who would expose them to a lot of inappropriate things, inappropriate comments she would make, things that maybe she shouldn't be watching on TV, like wrestling. She would guzzle beers while the parents were away. Ida was originally written to be this ornery lesbian, very hardcore, but those aspects of her character, the sexuality aspects, were removed mostly in later revisions. Now, for the other two main roles, nepotism did play more of a part. Nepotism played part in the Jaffees working for their father, but also in the casting. The part of Deputy Bruce was written for Paul Link, who happened to be a friend of Robert Jaffe's ever since their days at USC. Link was on hiatus from his role as Officer Grossman on TV's Chips. Paul Link and his first wife, Francesca, they were on the verge of birthing their son at home with a midwife. Francesca requested that their friend, Kether a.k.a. Nina Axelrod, Nina Axelrod, the daughter of famed playwright George Axelrod, who adapted screenplays like The Seven-Year Itch, which was based on his play, The Manchurian Candidate, and Breakfast at Tiffany's. They wanted Kether, a.k.a. Nina, to be there to assist. And Paul decided, well, if Francesca was going to invite a friend, he was going to invite his own friend, Robert, 
over to the birth. And when he did come over, it was love at first sight. Nina and Robert began dating and then became a couple shortly thereafter. Now, during their rewrites, Jaffe decided he was going to inject a part specifically for Nina. She would play this young blonde motorcycle accident survivor with daddy issues named Terry, who begins to have feelings for Vincent. She's unaware that he's actually a murderous cannibal, of course. Fearing United Artists might object to the relationship, Nina had to go through auditions, pretend she was just another actress. After she was officially given the role, the romantic couple pretended on the set to fall in love while they were making the film, even though they had already been romantically involved before they even started. So eventually they did marry in 1981, and they actually continue to remain together to this day. Link was cast as Vincent's brother, Bruce. Despite the actor being 26 years Calhoun's junior, for the role, Link decided to go on a crash diet at this place about 90 minutes drive away. He was wrapping his body with herbs and cellophane to try to shrink his fat cells. And then under his costume, he also wore this kind of a, a corset to give him a, an even more slim appearance. Wolfman Jack, that was another late addition to the film. The job was secured by his agent, who was looking for movies to squeeze Wolfman Jack into. The Jaffees agreed they were going to give Jack a role because this would give the film some needed publicity to appeal to certain demographics that Wolfman Jack appealed to. Frank Mars Cotolo, he was a comedy writer who wrote specifically for Wolfman Jack on his radio show, he wrote in the scenes that feature Wolfman Jack, mostly playing this slimy pastor. Although Wolfman shot a few lengthy scenes, a lot of them ended up cut and only used as something in the background on the television in the motel. So a lot of that stuff got cut out. So it's mostly an extended cameo in this film. There was a church scene that was supposed to be at the beginning of the film and also a wedding near the end of the film. Those were removed Motel Hell was filmed in the locale of Canyon Country, which is in northern Los Angeles County, California. A house at Sable Ranch was converted to look like the motel's office, while the nearby horse stables were used to build the rest of the motel exteriors. The Sable Ranch location was used in a lot of films over the years, but became kind of a horror movie staple after Motel Hell. The interiors were mostly done at Laird International Studios, a.k.a. Culver City Studios, the Jaffees fought very hard to try to keep the comedy in because United Artists, who happened to be struggling with the Heaven's Gate debacle in 1980, they thought that a straight slasher film approach was much more of a commercial appeal. They wanted to remove a lot of the comedy and not take so many chances there. And so there was kind of a two-week period where it seemed like the production seemed to be on a pause. Link believes that this was the period where the studio coerced Connor and the Jaffees to try to reverse the broadly comedic direction of the film. For instance, there was a slapstick scene of Deputy Bruce falling down a flight of stairs that was shot, but then it was completely removed in the finished product. He thinks maybe that was as a result of uh, studio meddling, but Connor still insists to this day that there was no studio meddling involved. This was the film that he really was trying to make. He did cut some scenes he thought were poorly paced, including paring down of those scenes involving Wolfman Jack and a few other scenes he felt that were distracting from the tone of the film. Now, Connor added those other sequences of that other preacher on TV because he had seen when he came to the United States this televangelist named Gene Scott. He thought it would be good to have 
that stuff throughout the movie in the background on television. And the preacher character is the same character and actor who plays the male in this S&M, this kinky swinging couple that comes to the motel to frolic later in the film. A lot of people don't catch on to that one, though. But despite keeping still a lot of comedy intact in Motel Hell, United Artists nevertheless marketed the film as a slasher, pretty much a straight slasher, because they felt that black comedies were just not as commercially sellable. Now, the actors who played the victims in the garden, they sat in these pits that were dug out there for hours to simulate being buried up to their necks. They were unnerved when they saw dead rattlesnakes all around because they those happened to be killed by the crew. They were all in the area. They wanted to make sure that they weren't going to get bitten by these rattlesnakes. Nevertheless, as they sat there immobile, John Ratzenberger, this was one of his first American films. He played the drummer in the punk band Ivan and the Terribles. He started playing jokes, unnerving the other actors by saying that he thought he might have saw a snake or felt a snake or a spider inside the pit. To simulate sounds of people whose vocal cords had been severed, the actors often made their own grunts and gurgles, but for the character of Bo, which happened to be Terry's biker boyfriend at the beginning of the film, they wanted something extra special. So the sound editor found this man who had recently undergone a tracheotomy to come into the sound booth and make a whole series of different noises, unlike anything that most people could do with a healthy throat. The climactic showdown chainsaw fight at the end of Motel Hell, that was another late addition. It took place over four days, 12 hours a day to do this within this sweltering former outhouse. All of the pig's heads and the carcasses you see in the scene with the exception of the stunt person who was wearing a styrofoam pig's head for Farmer Vincent, all of those pig carcasses and heads were real. And so as the days continued in this sweltering outhouse, those carcasses started rotting. The smell started to overtake them. There was oppressive heat there. Bee smoke was all around because they thought that it should be a smoky atmosphere. That left all of these actors with black stuff that was oozing out of their pores and In addition to that, the length of the shoot, the hot days, they started getting very nauseous by the end of those four days. When it was finally released, Motel, despite having studio backing, it did have kind of mediocre box office results. And that is primarily due to having a lot of competition for the horror movie dollars at the time that it was released, right before Halloween of 1980. There was also a burnout factor. There were so many prominent horror releases of the 1970s that were very similar to this. So... It pulled in a little over $6 million off of its $3.2 million budget, so not that successful. Modest disappointment in some respects. But over the years, it's earned a minor cult following for lovers of 80s horror flicks, but also people who read into a lot of what's going on in the film. Some viewers and critics perceive this underlying commentary on the excesses of American society. It's kind of refreshing to view over the years. The filmmakers claim that they had no such deeper notions when putting the film together. But you have to understand, in the 1970s, consumerism was greatly expanding in the United States and in unison with awareness of environmentalism. So the public psyche happened to be in tune with the hippie movement, looking for more responsible ways of dealing with life on Earth. There was a growing unease emerging about the overpopulation of people, dwindling agricultural resources to feed everybody. That was uh, a main concern. Dystopian science fiction films like Soylent Green, they started exploring the possibilities of humans as a food commodity when traditional means of nutrition collapse. So also in the 70s, 
Zombie films proliferated because they expressed this underlying fear of people turning on each other for sustenance. Now, as I mentioned, the makers of Motel Hell claimed they had no such aspirations to make this echo-conscious horror film, but to many people, the elements are undeniably there. These main characters claim that they're improving the quality of life for everybody on Earth because they're solving the overpopulation problem. Meets me and a man's gotta eat, that's the motto of Farmer Vincent the butcher and entrepreneur, blending human meat into his pork products. He claims they're not playing God, but they're doing what they can to help out the planet. So they planted this garden, not of vegetables, but of people that they've abducted, buried into the ground up to their necks to feed and fatten to the slaughter. A humane slaughter, though, because they hypnotize their victims so that they think that they're at Cape Canaveral about to take a mission to Mars. And so they would be oblivious to any pain that they would be under when they finally get the cleaver to them. Vincent happens to be very gaunt and concerned about his obese sister Ida, who always seems to be stuffing her face. It's kind of a, a hypocritical repudiation of battling human overconsumption that weighs heavy on Vincent's mind. In the end, Vincent has to confront his hypocrisies, not only of Ida, but himself, because we find out that he, he has indeed used harmful preservatives to keep his meat seeming fresh. That was the only regret in Vincent's very, very murderous, in fact, career as a farmer. So because of these things, the film has nonetheless found a cult following among horror fans and those people who like to read in to a lot of those things, a horror comedy hybrid that was a few years ahead of its time. And it's enjoyable in that respect. You can actually have a good time watching. It's a very watchable movie. I would not necessarily say it's a good movie one I would recommend to most people, but certainly if you are a lover of films of the 1980s, specifically low-budget horror films, ones that kind of tread the line between horror and comedy, it fits the bill. It's a good drive-in movie, so to speak. So two and a half stars is what I give Motel Hell. Two and a half stars on my scale means that I do think that it had the tools and had the talent to be something more. I do have to hedge my bets here and not give it a three-star rating because I do think that it is a very uneven film. I do think that it has a certain appeal. It's very well shot. It is a good-looking film, especially when you compare it to other you know, more, more low-budget independent films of its era. It's got a lot going for it, but I don't think it quite gets it all together enough to give it that push that would make me wholeheartedly recommend it for horror movie enthusiasts altogether. But I do think it's worth giving a shot Enough for me to give it two and a half stars out of four. Now, after this, the Camp Hill Productions decided that their second feature, if they were going to make a second feature, was going to be a film version of Marvel Comics Thor. In 1983, they had the screenplay by Robert Jaffe and comics legend Stan Lee. Kevin Connor was reportedly tentatively attached, but it ended up getting nixed. It was considered too expensive to take on at the time. This was back a long time ago before comic book movies really dominated at the box office. These were kind of looked down upon, at least at the time. After her appearance in this film, Nina Axelrod went on to screen test for Rachel in Blade Runner. Obviously, that went to Sean Young in the end. As I mentioned, the cult film status did catch on. There were a lot of horror movie fans, horror movie makers that wanted to try to take this on. In 2007, MGM decided to option the rights to remake Motel Hell to Twisted Pictures, who did the Saw films. They were given the rights, but they really were struggling to find a good script. They soon sold it back to MGM. With the producers seeking then-director Stephen C. Miller, he became attached to an MGM remake, an in-house remake, that was going to be produced by Craig Perry. 
But Motel Hell eventually went into development hell because of MGM's financial issues and it eventually got canceled. In 2010 though, if you're somebody who still wants to see a follow-up of some sort, you can do it in print form because IDW, the comic book publisher, published a Motel Hell three-issue comic book miniseries where Vincent and Ida run kind of this Napa Valley winery that has more to it than meets the eye. So if you're interested there, not much talk about it since then, but somebody someday will probably decide to take on Motel Hell for a new generation. If you have your own thoughts on Motel Hell that you want to impart, you can find my contact information. You can find links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, my Instagram, at my website, quipster.net. I do think that if you want to write to me at length, email is the best way to do that. You can find all of my contact information at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Well, I mentioned earlier that I was going to kind of take a diversion by moving up the three-part series that I was going to have after this three-part series. So the next feature I'm going to cover is actually the oldest movie that I will be covering here on Around the World in 1980s Movies. actually came out in the 1960s. 1960, to be exact. What in 1960 would follow up Motel Hell? Well, there was another very famous movie featuring a motel where something evil happens in 1960 that also had sequels that came out in the 1980s and of course you're way ahead of me i'm sure i'm talking about alfred hitchcock's masterpiece psycho so psycho will be the next film i cover right here on around the world in 80s movies and kind of like the shining i anticipate it's going to take me a while to do the research on that because there are whole books movies documentaries that all cover Psycho as a film, so I have to digest all of that before I get to writing the review for you for the next episode, so be patient, everybody. I'm covering the Jurassic Park films, by the way, on To the 90s and Beyond, so if you subscribe to that podcast, you will still hear me and my voice and my takes on the Jurassic Park films to hopefully tide you over until the Psycho episode does come out. But until then, thank you, everyone, for listening and joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. You never know what a pretty face can hide.